All right, we're going to finish our series today called The Kings of Babylon, and we're going to be talking about the fourth king, which is Cyrus, and I'm going to just give you a little bit of history on the book of Daniel first, and then I'll tell you what this message is about. Um, uh, You need to know that Daniel ministered to all four of these kings, and just let me show you some quick scriptures, Daniel 121 says, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And we're going to be talking about Cyrus today. And Daniel 6, 28, this is actually where we ended last week at the end of chapter 6. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So we talked about Darius last week, now Cyrus. Now, to let you know, Daniel has 12 chapters. The first six chapters are historical chapters. They're the history of what happened during the exile. The exile is the 70 years when God took Israel, the people of Israel, out of the land into Babylon in captivity. Okay, that's called the exile. So the first six chapters are the history of the exile. The second six chapters, chapters 7 through 12, are the visions that Daniel received that most people believe are about the end times, and some are about the end times, but some are about things that were going to happen until the Messiah came and when the Messiah came, all right? So let me just show you, you can read these, but it would take a whole nother series, but just Daniel 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, just the first verse, all right? Daniel 7, 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And then I have actually preached uh, through some parts of Daniel 7 last Easter. I used Daniel 7 to show how Jesus fulfilled that. Daniel 8, 1. In the third year of the reign king of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me. Daniel 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of uh, Hardword, of the lineage of the Medes, <laughs> who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, now, here's what I want you to notice. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, now keep, hold this phrase for later in the message, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Daniel is saying, I understood that we would be released after 70 years. Just no, once you notice that, we'll come back to that. Daniel 10.1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. Daniel 11.1, also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm strength in him. So you can see how it just keeps going through, how he's saying, in the first year of this king, I had this dream. In the third year of this king, I had this dream. Are you all following me? Now, one thing I want you to know about Daniel is Daniel is one of the most puzzling books to skeptics in the world. It is so puzzling because he prophesied things with such specificity. (sighs) Yeah, yeah, hard word, hard word. Thank you so much, brother, for pointing that out to the whole church. I appreciate it. I'm joking. (laughs) Specificity that... uh, that even skeptics, they, they just can't explain it. And they're, they're, they're even actually, I'm going to just say it, stupid explanations for it. But it's crazy. But Daniel actually prophesied the year that Jesus began his ministry. It's amazing. 
Daniel prophesied in Daniel 11 that the Persian Empire would be conquered by another empire, specified the dates, and that that empire would become the greatest empire in the world. Then that empire would be cut off suddenly and would become four empires. That, those four empires would become two. Those two would become one. And during that last empire, the Messiah would come. Now, Daniel prophesied this in uh, 500 years, a little over 500 years before Christ in the 6th century. Now, let me just say that again. That they would be, the Persians would be conquered by one empire. That empire would become the greatest empire in the world. You, you know about it. I'll tell you about it in a moment. That empire would be cut off suddenly, would become four empires. Those four would become two. Those two would become one. And during the last one, the, in, the Messiah would come. Okay. So in the fourth century, uh, um, Alexander the Great, you ever heard of Alexander the Great? Conquered the Persians. Begin to conquer most of the known world, became the greatest empire the world had ever known. It was cut off suddenly because Alexander died at 32. He died without an heir, so the empire was divided into four empires. Daniel prophesied this 500 years before the Jesus came. Those four empires were the four generals that Alexander had. Two of those generals were Seleucia and uh, Ptolemy, which became, those two became the Seleucid period empire and the Ptolemaic empire. You ever heard of those? You ever study those in script, in uh, history? Okay. Those two then were conquered by one empire called Rome. And then during the Roman empire, Jesus came. And Daniel prophesies that 500 years before. That's, that's not bad. What that means is that God knows what's going to happen. The reason I'm telling you that is because God knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow. Our God knows. Nothing catches him by surprise. And some of, some of Daniel is about end times. I think more people think it's about end times. I think some of it has already been fulfilled by Jesus, the Messiah. But then I read you through Daniel 11. Daniel 12, verse 1. I want you to watch how it starts and watch how many scriptures in the New Testament, this one verse, I, I wish I could have given them to you, but I don't have time. If this was a, a seminary class, I'd give them all to you, but I don't have time in a weekend message. But Daniel 12, verse 1 says, at that time, Michael shall stand up. Michael, Michael, the, the archangel, shall stand up. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble a great tribulation, such as never since was since there was a nation, even at time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. There's a rapture. Everyone who is found written in the book, and the New Testament talks about the book of life, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting. That's First Thessalonians 4. Those who sleep asleep will, shall, will awake, Right? Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's Revelation 20. That's, that's Daniel. Are y'all, are y'all following me? So it's amazing. All right. So we're going to talk about Cyrus. And I've been telling you that Cyrus is the surprise. Uh, we talked about the seduction of pride, the stubbornness of pride, and the deception of pride. Now, let me just say right now, if you've been seduced by pride, then you are stubborn and you are easily deceived. The worst meetings I have in the world are when I have to meet with prideful people because they're stubborn 
and they're deceived. And it seems like no matter what I say, even straight out of Scripture, I can't get through. I don't mind meeting with anybody who's humble because we can work through anything. But you can't work through anything with a prideful person because he's stubborn and he's deceived. So we've talked about that. What does Cyrus represent? So here's the title of the message this week. This is the surprise. The reversal of pride. Pride can be reversed. Let me say it another way. A prideful person can become a humble person. A prideful person can become a humble person. So, let's ask this though, because we've got Nebuchadnezzar and God humbled him. Uh, Darius and God humbled him. We've got all through Scripture, God humbling people. So, does God humble people? Yes, God does humble people. Why would God ever humble anyone? I'm going to give you some answers, but let me just give you one that's not even in my notes, all right? And that is that pride, we've heard pride comes before a fall. That's actually not what the Bible says. It says pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Look it up yourself. But our little saying has become, you know, the Bible says pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. No, it comes before destruction. A haughty spirit comes before a fall. Okay, so why would God ever humble anyone? Simple, to keep them from being destroyed. In other words, because he loves you. So, let me give you three, three reasons to re- that God wants to reverse pride in your life. Number one, God's plans for you are for your good. God's plans for you are for your good. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.16, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know. Listen to all my children of Israel went through the wilderness. Watch, that he might humble you. So God did this to humble them. That he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. There it is right there. I straight out of the Bible. Why would God ever humble anyone to do them good, for their good? Matter of fact, you've probably made this statement at some point. I know God is humbling me and I God know I know God is testing me right now, but I know it's for my good. If you're a mature believer, you know Romans eight twenty eight that all things work for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose, right? Okay, so he's doing it for that. But we're talking about the exile. That was talking about the wilderness. Wouldn't it be great if there were a scripture that actually said that God took the children of Israel out of the land for 70 years for their good? Wouldn't it be great if there was some pastor who spent all week studying to find that scripture just for you? Do you remember Daniel said, and I told you to remember this, he said, I started reading the book of Jeremiah, and that's when I figured out it was 70 years. Remember that? Let me show you the scripture. Daniel 24 verse 5. I mean, pardon me. Jeremiah 24 verse 5. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. By the way, this is right before they're taken captive. Like these good figs, so will I acknowledge those who are carried away captive from Judah. 
whom I have sent out of this place. Do you mind saying these words? For their own good. Into the land of the Chaldeans, which is Babylon. I told you. God did this for the good of his people. Not to punish them, not because he's mad at them, not because he's going to get it back, teach them a lesson. I'm going to really teach them a good lesson. He's doing it for their good. Now, there's another scripture in Jeremiah 29, in uh, Jeremiah, that you know. As a matter of fact, we quote it. As a matter of fact, it was in the little ceramic bread thing on my grandmother's table. Any remember that? It was the verse of the day. Bread for the what bread for the day or something like that. And you pull it out and read a scripture and then put that one in the back, you know? Okay. So I remember it. You have quoted this scripture, I'll bet you. But I also bet you you didn't know the context. Jeremiah twenty nine, eleven. You ever heard of this scripture? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace. And one version says, not a, a, uh, thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, you ready for this scripture you quoted? You want to know what the context is of it? Watch verse 10, the verse right before it. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon... I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place for, isn't it amazing we we memorize a verse and we don't realize it started with a preposition? And some of you are thinking, I don't really know what a preposition is, (laughs) Pastor Robert. It means it's preceding a subject that we need to find out what it's talking about. It's, it's, it's giving us more explanation of a, of a certain subject it's already talked about, you know. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. That's where the verse came from. It's referring to the exile. Now, let me show you one more scripture here. Second Chronicles 36, 22 and 23. These are the last two verses of Second Chronicles. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. We just read the two scriptures. The Lord stirred up the spirits of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, the Lord of God of heaven has given me and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem. Now we're going to see that actual scripture as well where he commands Cyrus to fund the building of the temple. A house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. In other words, all of you who are of of Jerusalem, y'all go up and do this, and I'm going to fund it. I'm going to resource it. Okay, now here's what I want you to know about this. (laughs) You know, it's fun to teach people the Bible that haven't, you know, been able to, haven't had the opportunity, you're called to do something else. So you had not been able to have the opportunity to study it as, as some of us have. You know, I understand that. Second Chronicles 36, with the, ver- the ver- two verses we just read, the last two verses, Second Chronicles 36. Are you ready for this? Are you ready? I want you to be ready. 
This is big deal to me, okay? These are the last two verses chronologically of the Hebrew Scriptures, not Malachi. These are the last, this is the way the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures end, right here, with the rebuilding of the temple. Jesus comes along and says, you see this temple? You've worshiped at this temple, but I'm telling you, listen to the way he says it. I think he said it like this, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days. I'm changing the way you thought about the temple. I'm about to make my temple in your heart. But these are the scriptures. These are scriptures. In the Hebrew scriptures, there are 24 books, not 39. In in our Old Testament, Christian Old Testament, there's 39. The reason there are 24, it's the same books, by the way. It's the same books. But they categorize them differently. The first five books would be the Torah. The Hebrew word is Torah. The Greek word is Pentateuch for the first five books of the Old Testament. Then the next um, 11 books would be the prophets. So you've got, I'm thinking whether it's 11 or 12 now. Yes. No, pardon me. It's eight books. Eight books are the prophets and then 11 books are called the writings. But the reason we get 39 is that some of the books like Kings are one book and we have it first and second Kings. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book and those are two books in our, in our Bible. Uh, Chronicles, Samuel, those are two books in ours. You see what I'm saying? So that's how you get it. And also in the book of the prophets, the last book, we have, uh, it would be the ma- we call them the major prophets and the minor prophets, and we have 11 of those. So that's how you get to 39 books. That's how you get to the Christian Old Testament. You follow me? But the last, this is the way it ends. This is the way it ends. But here's what I want to tell you. Here's the good news, okay? If you get yourself in trouble, even if God is disciplining you like he was his children, he's doing it for your good. He's doing it for your good. If you're going through something right now, you need to know it's for your good. It was always for their good. And he said it over and over again. And just to show you just one example of that, Joseph gets thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. You say, well, how was that for his good? Well, a couple of things. God was preparing him to be number two in the most powerful nation in the world at that time, Egypt. But I think there was pride in Joseph. And I think God was humbling him for his good. Here's the reason I think there was pride. God gave him a dream when he was 17 years old that his brothers would bow down to him. I I want you to think about this. Why would God give you a dream when you're 17? Now, I'm not saying anything bad because there are a lot of mature 17-year-olds, but there's only two in the whole world probably. (laughs) And I haven't met them yet. So, 17. And here's what it says, Genesis 37, when his brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him. By the way, the Hebrew word here is hated. They hated him and could not speak peace of him. Watch. Now, Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. Okay. Just, just a, a question. What, what would cause you to tell older stronger brothers that hate you 
that they're going to bow down to you one day. I, I, some, I was wanting to say pride, but then it came to me, stupidity. That's what it would be, actually. Okay, so God's doing it for your good. Here's number two. God knows you before you know him. So no matter what type of home you grew up in or no matter what you went through, God, God knew you before you knew him. So it is believed that Daniel, not only when he was reading Jeremiah, he also read Isaiah and showed these scriptures to Cyrus. And that's why Cyrus gave the decree to build the temple. We don't know that Daniel's the one that showed him because the Bible doesn't tell us that. But we think Daniel would have been the logical one because he's the one who had access and he had his ear. Okay. But let me show you. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. Verse 4. Jacob, for Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. Watch this. I have named you, though you have not known me. Chapter 44, verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Do you remember? He makes the proclamation that God has told me to rebuild Jerusalem and build the temple. Where else would he have known except if if Daniel had said to him, look right here, your name's in Isaiah also. And by the way, This was written 150 years before this. 150 years. Now, here's the amazing thing. God said, I named you. I'm the one that gave you your name. (laughs) What you don't know is that when Cyrus was born, his grandfather was the king. And his grandfather had a dream that his grandson was going to overthrow him. Now, the grandfather, the son's name, who was the father of Cyrus, guess, guess, listen to what his name was, Cambyses the first. Why wouldn't his son be named Cambyses the second? By the way, Cyrus named his, his son Cambyses the second. Okay? So the grandfather has this dream that's, that his grandson is going to overthrow him. So he orders him to be killed. They hand him, they give him to one of the king's uh, upper guys there. He takes him out, but he meets a shepherd and his wife who are burying their stillborn son. And he switches babies with them. He takes the dead baby back and says, look, the infant has been killed to the grandfather of the king. The shepherd names him Cyrus, even though his father named him Cambyses II. Because if he had been named that, someone would have known who he was. Are you all following me? Okay. He names him Cyrus. God says 150 years before he comes into power, I'm the one that named you. I knew you. And then he makes this statement, and you're my shepherd. For the first 10 years of his life, he's raised by this shepherd and his mother. And he thinks that's his parents. And he thinks he's a shepherd. And he learns to tend sheep. And he thinks he's going to be a shepherd. Every year when they took the baby back, 
the grandfather had ordered him to be killed mourned so much every year on his birthday that finally on his 10th birthday, he was mourning so much on his 10th birthday that they finally said to him, got the nerve up to say, King, he's not dead. He's not dead. He's still alive. And he said, please restore him. I want to know. I want to be able to meet my grandson. So they go and take him. He has no clue though. He thinks he's been taken from his real parents. See, the shepherd. He goes and begins living in the palace, finds out he's the grandson. By the way, the prophecy came past. He did overthrow his grandfather. (laughs) He did become the ruler of the world. But when he becomes the ruler of the world, the prophet comes to him and he says to him, look right here. This was written 150 years ago. And God says, I'm the one that named you. And I knew you before you knew me. And then it says that when this is what the um, uh, uh, Persian, who was also Greek, Herodotus, the historian of the day, the most notable story, he's actually called the father of history. He's the most notable first historian ever called the father of history, Herodotus. Here's what he wrote about it. He said, when Cyrus saw that God called, said, he is my shepherd, he knew that God knew him personally. He knew God knew him personally. That's why with such conviction, he would say, rebuild this temple. Because this is what God's done in my life. Are, y- are y'all following me? This is amazing. This is amazing. I'm telling you, our God knows. He plans. He's got it all planned out, everything. So he knew you before you knew him. Here's number three. God's plans for you include provision. God's plans for you include provision. Ezra 1 verse 4, and whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Ezra 3 7, they also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. God was providing for them everything they needed through Cyrus. This is the reversal of pride. When pride gets reversed in your life, you immediately step into God's plan for you, and you also step into God's provision for you. And Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego were always provided for. The children in the Israel, their clothes didn't wear out, and their shoes didn't wear out. And I know you ladies wouldn't like having the same pair of shoes for 40 years. But they didn't wear out. They could, there wasn't a Nordstrom's in the wilderness. So God provided for them. So even when the children of Israel were in a time of correction from God, and even when Israel was in a time of correction, God was providing. But as soon as they were humbled, the children of Israel in the wilderness walked into the promised land, with a, which was a land that had houses built by giants. The giants were over nine feet tall, nine-foot king-size beds. Nine foot big screen TVs. <laughs> Not bad. And then when the children of Israel were released and went back to rebuild the walls of their city and their temple, 
every penny was provided for already. This is our God. This is God. This is God. So, God humbles us, but that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is that you humble yourself. Because even when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, he had a choice. He had to humble himself. God humbled Darius and Cyrus, and they humbled themselves. Belshazzar did not humble himself. Remember that? Even though God humbled him. So just taking Second Chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, just saying Chronicles, I could do it all through the Bible. Just saying Chronicles, let me just show you a few verses on this, all right? One very famous one, chapter 7, verse 14. You ever heard this one? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. That's the first thing. Listen, listen, listen to this. That's what you're supposed to do even before you pray. That's more important than prayer. Because prayer from a prideful heart is not going to go anywhere. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And then I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Second Chronicles 12, 6, so the leaders of the Israel and king humbled themselves. Second Chronicles 32, 26, then Hezekiah humbled himself. 33, 23, he did not humble himself. 34, 27, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself. 36, 12, he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself. And here's the New Testament, if you want it confirmed by the New Testament. James 4, 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. 1 Peter 5, 6, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Okay, so how do you humble yourself? I asked God that question for many years. I said, God, I want to be, I want to be humble, but I really don't want to be humbled. <laughs> Have you ever had that thought? <laughs> I want to be humble, Lord, but I really don't want you to humble me. But the Bible says, humble myself. So how do you humble yourself? Well, the Lord showed me one day, and he gave me the greatest example of humbling yourselves. It's the person that humbled himself the most that ever lived. It's Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ have, had. Though he was God... He did not think of equality with God, though he was equal with God, as something to hang on to or to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege. He gave up his equality with God. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he what? Humbled himself. In obedience to God, and died a criminal's death on the cross. So how do you humble yourself? The word humble has about four or five definitions in the Greek. This is one of the definitions. To rank yourself below others. To rank yourself below others. And Philippians 2, if you backed up a little bit, verse 3 says this. Let each esteem others better than himself. Better. Not equal. 
Now listen, there, we, we talk about equality and we should talk about equality. Because we don't have gender equality and we don't have racial equality in this world right now. But we should also talk about humility in the kingdom of God. And humility takes equality a step further. And I'm not saying anything bad about equality. Please hear that. But humility takes it a step further. It doesn't mean that I don't just consider you equal. It means I consider you better than I am. I esteem you higher than I esteem myself. I take the form of a servant. And I'm here to serve you. I don't stand up here every week as the leader of the church. I stand up here as the servant of the church. And I'm here to serve you the Word of God every week. That's my job. That's what I do. And that, that is a step farther. And you say, well, how do you do that? He said, you've got to have the same mind Christ had. Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus is the way the New King James says it. Let me just say, well, how do I do that? I can tell you it's very simple. You take every thought captive that comes into your mind. You renew your mind with the Word of God. Renew. You make it new again. I want you to think about this. I just did the um, registration on Debbie's car. Renewed it. Okay? Renew. Renew. That's what it said. Registration. Renew all. You know what that means? That means I don't take a magic marker and change the year on it. It means they're going to send me a brand new registration sticker. You can make your mind new again with this book right here. You can make it new. You can think of yourself lower than other people. You can do it. So when I, closing illustration, when I thought about this, the person that I thought of that has always esteemed everyone better than herself is my wife. Always. She's the greatest example of humility I know. She, she esteems me. She esteems everyone we meet. She's constantly wanting us to help a person in need. She's talked to me about giving cars to single moms. We, we, have, we, we give cars when God tells us to. Uh, and years ago, the Lord told me, I handle all the finances in our family. I, I, I don't mean that in a wrong way toward her, but she can't count. <laughs> and she will admit it. She does not understand numbers. She, I was telling her one time something about our finance. She says, ah, ba, 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 ba. She, she just, she cannot. So I just handle it. And so when we do Heart for the King or something, I've asked her before, let's try to come up with the same number. I asked her that one time. Let's, let's come up with the same. I said, I asked the church to do it, sugar. We have never done this in our whole married life. Let's just try one time to come up with the same number. So I prayed about it, okay? The number I got was $10,000. I'm just going to tell you the number that I got. This was 10 years ago or so. That was the number I got. And I thought, you know, we, so I said to her, what, did you come up with the number? She said, I think so. I said, what number did you come up with? She said, 5,000. So just to make sure I heard her right, I said, 5,000? She said, or 50,000. <laughs> and I said to her, do you understand the difference? <laughs> now, for those of you mathematicians like I am, difference is a mathematical word. Right? Okay, right? I see some shaking your head. Others of you have a blank look. That's okay. But do you understand the difference? The difference is 45000 by the way, which is a lot of money. 
Do you understand the difference between those two numbers? Here's what she said. Yes, a zero. (laughs) She said, nothing. Nothing is the difference between those two numbers. Okay, so we have never prayed about an offering again (laughs) together. But I, I just handle the finances. But the years ago, the Lord told me, when she wants to give something, whatever it is, you give it. He told me that. Whatever she wants to give, you give. Because she'll come sometimes and say, she, I remember the first time she did it, she said, I'd like to help this single mom. I want, I'd like to get her a new car. A car. Uh, we bought her a used car, but I'd like to get her a car. And the Lord said to me, whatever she says, you do it. She's very generous, but she just... She's always generous with everyone else. She's never generous with herself. So every year at Christmas and uh, anniversary and birthday, I call Elaine, our daughter. Where's Elaine? Right there. To find out what, what does mom want. Because she won't tell me. Because she knows I'll go back. So Elaine starts hinting around. Just letting you know. This is, <laughs> Elaine is the spy. You knew Elaine was the spy. So a few years ago, I said, what does she want? And she said, mom swore me to secrecy. I said, sugar, I'm going to pull rank. She said, well, she would like a certain purse, but it's very, very expensive and very extravagant. And so she said to me, please don't ever tell your dad this because this is too expensive of a purse. But I like this purse. And so I said, because she said it's very expensive, I said, well, how much is it? Well, when she told me, I came close to having a heart attack. That was the closest, <laughs> closest I've come to dying other than the helicopter. It was the closest I've come. And I thought, are you sure she doesn't want a, a, another car? You know, I, you know, that's just, that's crazy. That's crazy. So I, but I went to the Lord, Lord. What do you want me to do? Here's what the Lord said to me. Now listen. He said, I would like to give that purse to my daughter. He said, I want to show my daughter how much I love her. So a few weeks after that, we go to speak at this church. And a widow in the church came to Debbie and said, God told me to buy you this. And she opened it up, and it was the exact same purse that she wanted. The exact same purse. And she said to her, this is from a father to his daughter. God wanted you to have this. I'm telling you, God's plans for you are good. No matter what you're going through, God knew you before you knew him. And God's plans include provision.